book in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews is one that is often, uh, people stay away from it. Number one, uh, we're not Hebrews. I'm not, I don't know anybody here that has Jewish descent. And so many times people get the wrong idea that this is only for Hebrews that have become Christians. Uh, now the reality was the original audience was actually Hebrews. They were uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that were under the covenant uh, that God set up with the Israelites. Um, but because of the fact that this religion, this uh, interaction with God was set up so that people could ultimately have this nation that God was going to birth the Messiah, the Savior, out of, um, you, what you have to know is that it, everything in their religion pointed to the one day the coming Messiah. And so the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is actually Jesus is better. Uh, and, and the reality is that the day and age that they were living in, they were the second generation of believers, uh, the first generation after the apostles. So the apostles, the disciples that walked with Jesus for three years, they were taught by him, they laid their head where he laid his head, they went to prayer, they, they did all these things and they saw what Jesus did, and then they, the disciples, became apostles, and they ended up sharing their faith with those that were around them, and you have this second generation of believers that have believed what they were told by the eyewitnesses. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I, I cannot imagine what that was like to have Peter, James, and John, and, and, and all the rest being able to say, hey, we walked with him. We, the things that we believe, we, we saw him happen. You know, we saw the guy that was blind, and he rubbed dirt on his eye, and he spit in his eye, and, and then he told him to wash in a certain place, and then he could see. He healed blind people. And so uh, in the midst of this, these believers, while having this second generation of faith, they've believed and they've come to saving knowledge on their own. Um, while they're believing, at the same time, they can see the temple mount. They can see that the temple is still there and the sacrifices that they used to go to every year, every festival, they would go and make, actually, they would take animals that they grew, they would take grains that they grew, and they would offer them, they'd give them to the Levitical priesthood and they would make the sacrifice on the altar they would kill the fatted calf they would kill the the spotless lamb the thing that pointed to passover they would literally go to the temple mount with these offerings and they would give them and i don't know about you guys but here it is labor day weekend and we think of the smell of barbecue we think of memorial day we think of labor day we think of fourth of july you smell it and there's these smells that go along with it. you're like oh i can't wait till that weekend when we can we can barbecue you know, and I was invited to a barbecue last weekend, and I was like, man, I love the smell of cooking meat, you know, and I love the taste of barbecue sauce, and I love corn on the cob, even though it gets stuck in my teeth, and it's just, I'm an American, right? Well, for us, uh, maybe we can relate a little bit more to Judaism than we think, because we've got our own traditions. We've got things that smells remind us of, you know, some of you, you got a smell, if you smell it, you, you think of grandma's house, and when she'd be cooking. You know, and, and the reality is they, they had this relationship with God that was based on, hey, I messed up, I'm going to go take a sacrifice to the temple. And all of a sudden, they no longer have to do that. Uh, I messed up, I get to go pray to my high priest. I don't have to go see a person. I can speak with the Lord of all creation through his son, and his son represents me to God and God to me, and, and I get to just come to his throne room in the middle of my house, in the middle of my workday, 
I, I could just stop right there, get on my knees and say, Lord, I messed up again. Would you please, for, hey, see that? <laughs> hey, thank you, Lord. It, it's got this lid that doesn't spill anyway, but good grief. Our kids actually don't do most of the spilling in our house. It's me. Anyway, <sighs> suck the Jesus out of the room. But anyway, they, they, they would have to go and make an animal sacrifice. And the work that goes, in, you know, if you shot a deer, you know, there's a lot of work to preparing meat and cutting up. Like, you just get it out of the package at the store, it's nothing. But when you've got to take an animal and raise it and feed it and provide for it, make sure it's got water, and then walk it all the way to the temple and make a sacrifice, everyone around you knows, hey, he messed up. He's got to go to the temple and make a sacrifice. But then you kill it, and you cut all the right pieces off of it, and the, the priesthood takes it, and they actually get to eat some of it. And, the, and that's how God provides for them. And then the priest goes in there and he prays for you or he prays for the nation. And this is no longer needed. But they could see it. They could taste it. They could touch it. And now we don't walk by faith or by sight anymore. We walk by faith. And so they couldn't trust in what they were doing to make things right between them and God. Now they just got to trust that what Jesus said is enough. This is hard. If you're used to living by your senses and all of a sudden you don't have to anymore, but you by faith are trusting that what Jesus said is true, you can imagine that they would struggle with that. And so in the book of Hebrews, on the next slide here, what we find out is that the book was written to Hebrew Christians. These are followers of Judaism. These are Israelite people that have been saved by grace. And the apostles were so faithful to share their faith with those Jewish people they were surrounded by. Many times we think of Christianity, we think that it's at odds with Judaism. In reality, is it's the fulfillment of Judaism. So then it, we find out that it was written by, well, we're not quite sure. All the other epistles, the letters, we kind of know who they were written by, but for whatever reason, many believe because of persecution, the writer actually didn't say who wrote it. But it agrees with the rest of Scripture, so it ends up in the canon. And some think that it was actually Paul, which makes sense because he would even tell us he was on the Sanhedrin. He was an upper echelon Jewish follower. And so he knew the ins and outs of the Christian faith and how they were really a fulfillment of the Jewish prophecy. And they knew, he knew the Old Testament scriptures better than anybody that we know. But then there's also Apollos, who we find that was actually, uh, he was following the way of Christ, but he didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, so Paul had prayed with him to receive the Holy Spirit, but many believe that he, the, the style of the writing in the book of Hebrews, it was, it was a more traditional and very astute kind of Greek, and what we find out is that he was very eloquent, and if you read some of the, the letters to the Corinthians, the Corinthians' biggest complaint about Paul is that he was not eloquent in speech, but Apollos, as you read this book, it's the way that he kind of works in the scripture and the way he describes and explains everything, it, it doesn't kind of match up with the rest of Paul's letters. And so many believe that it was actually the, the disciple Apollos that wrote uh, Hebrews. But you guys probably don't even care about that. My point is, is that we don't know really who wrote it, but it was written because the sights and the sounds and the, the tastes and, and everything that went along with their religion was visible to them still. But it was written in a timely it was written right on time because just within their generation, the, the receivers of this letter, God knew that the people of Rome were going to come in and destroy the temple. They would no longer be able to go and make sacrifice. 
So as a Hebrew Christian, if you're going back to your old religion and that's where your hope is placed in that system, God was showing them, hey, you don't need that system. As a matter of fact, you need to know that now because your system, your, your blanky, your binky, your comfort zone is about to be taken from you. And then where is your hope going to be placed? It can't be placed in this system anymore. Jesus fulfilled that system and he needs to be your hope. So the main theme that we're going to see throughout this entire book is that Jesus is better. Now, maybe you can't relate to that. Maybe what you would go back to would be like me. If I was going to go back to what I was or wh the way that I lived before Christ, it wouldn't be a religious system. Now, it was religious. <laughs> what I used to do was very religious. You know, a lot of if you ever talk to anybody and they say, well, I'm not really religious, tell them that yes, they are. I guarantee they either drink coffee every morning religiously, you know, or they, they go to the coffee shop or whatever they do. My father-in-law does that. Um, but every one of us have things that we go to that's our happy place. You know, for some guys, it's the deer woods. You know, for some people, it's, you know, their family time. Uh, but Jesus is better than all those things because those things can be taken from us. For some people, they bury themselves in work. You won't always be able to work. You're like, what do, you, what, what do you trust in? That's your happy place. That's your religion. You know, I, this morning I went for a two-mile run. Yes, believe it or not, I ran two miles. I got new shoes. Look, shiny. But that's my happy place sometimes. But you know what? One day I'm going to be too old to run two miles. Then what? Is that where my hope is truly placed? I hope not, because running is really not that fun. But I, I'm trying to get rid of dad bod, you know. But my point is, is that all things that we trust in, all the things that we find comfort in can be taken from us. Our children can be taken from us. Our jobs can be taken from us. The breath that's in our lungs can be taken from us. It's all gifts. Our health. But Jesus cannot be taken from us. Not a bit. So, you know, all my hope is in Jesus is an old hymn, but that's where our hope should be placed. And so he writes to the Hebrews to tell them this. Now, I have for you there, and I saw you snickering. Um, the Bible says Hebrews, right? And so technically in the Bible it says that all men should make coffee for their women. My mom sent me that one day. That's a proof text for the fact that you make the Bible say anything you want outside of the context. Context means everything, right? I threw that in there to make sure you guys were still with me. So next slide. So, let's begin. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better, and that word is in this letter so many times, the word better, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. 
So let's stop there. We're really only going to get through the first three verses this morning. But in this letter, what we find is that God's going to use the pen of whoever wrote this to break down everything that the Jewish people were prone to trust in and kind of show from Scripture how Jesus has surpassed them or become better than them in their religion. And so he's going to, next week we're going to look at how he's going to say that angels, while being amazing and while God's used them, uh, Jesus is better, simply. And we'll talk about that next week. But before we get there, he starts this letter, this epistle, and he says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers. The, the word fathers main, means, doesn't mean their dads. It means their ancestors. And he spoke to them in various times. And we can read the Old Testament and see these various times. These guys didn't all write at the same time. And he wrote and spoke to them in times past in various ways. So he didn't speak through every prophet the same way. Some of them, like we just read in Ezekiel in the Bible study together the other day, Ezekiel, he spoke through Ezekiel by having Ezekiel do these ridiculous things. He had him lay on his side for like a year. He had him cook his food over what he was going to ask him to cook it over was human feces. But he said, I've never eaten anything unclean. He goes, okay, you can cook it over cow feces. You know, he's going to use cow chips to cook over. And if you think that's weird, the settlers did it in the United States. So, you know, do your history there. But my point is he did that to show them they were getting ready to go in captivity and they were going to be surrounded about around their city walls by a foreign nation who would be threatening to kill them by the sword. So while they stayed within their walls, they would run out of food to the point that they wouldn't have anything to cook their food over and they'd have to cook it over what they had. There's always poop. There, I got, I got to say it. I haven't said it in a while. But he cooked, they, they were supposed to cook. So my point is, he spoke through Ezekiel that way. But through Jeremiah, he spoke through tears. Jeremiah was always disappointed and depressed because he saw what God was getting ready to do. He tried to warn the people and they would not listen to the point that Jeremiah ends up getting thrown in a well. A kind of dry well, but kind of not. It was full of miry clay which is uh, the word that the Bible uses for what's underneath most ponds. If you've ever gone pond swimming, you used to have a pond and it had that red clay underneath it. You go about knee deep when you go in. It's not refreshing. Uh, it is when it's hot, but it's nasty. And so that's what Jeremiah was in. So God spoke to the nation through Jeremiah, bringing him up out of the miry clay and setting his feet upon the rock, pointing to Jesus, and he spoke through Ezekiel in a different way. My point is, is that God spoke in various times, differing times, and he spoke in different ways. But he only spoke to them through one group of people, and that was prophets. God is always doing things in a way that will surprise us and catch us off guard, but he speaks through his people. And so he used the prophets to speak to the people. And we see that in Moses, we see that in Noah, we see that through Cain and Abel. Abel offered a, a better sacrifice and Cain killed him. And we find out later that Jesus actually says that, you know, he's rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees and he says, hey, you guys always kill the prophets from Abel all the way through Zechariah. They didn't want to hear the word of God and so they, they killed the messenger. 
thinking that they would stop the message, but then God would raise up another messenger. See, the source of the message didn't die, just the messengers. And so he continued speaking even when they rebelled against him. And so he says there, God at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. But he has in these last days spoken to us by who? His son, Jesus. And so even though men and women continue to rebel against God, that doesn't stop God from speaking. He is still speaking. His testimony, he sent his spirit to speak to us and through us as Christians. And so he's still speaking to those who reject him because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the saving knowledge of Jesus and have everlasting life. So what I love about this passage, though, is if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, I love this because everything God does is about his spoken word. And we see this in creation. In Genesis chapter 1, there's this passage that um, he says, um, in the beginning, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and it was void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So at this point, it's like chaos. There's all the elements. God's spoken them to existence, and yet he's going to take chaos and bring order. And so how does he do that? Does he get out his hammer? Does he get out his tools? No, he speaks. He speaks order into the chaos. And so it says there, God said, God said, let there be light. And go down to verse 6. It says, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And skip down to verse 9. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. Verse 11. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass the herb of the field, and he goes on to explain all the things that would grow. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the firmament, and the heavens divide the day from the night. And then God said, verse 20, let the waters around with an abundant, excuse me, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves. Zoom ahead to verse 24. Then God said, do you see my point here? God speaks and things happen. So when God says something, we should listen. Creation listens to God's voice. Creation started by God's voice. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creature according to its kind. Verse 26, then God said, and this is the one I want to slow down and look at. He says, let, then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The word there in the, in the Hebrew is Elohim, and it's a plural word, and yet it has a singularity to it. And that's the word where we get our idea from the Trinity. God is three persons, and yet he is one God. You shall have no other gods before him. So he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness let them have no dominion over the fish of the sea 
excuse me, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So my point is, is that throughout creation, it wasn't just God, the Father, involved in creation. It was actually the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see the Spirit hovering over the chaos. We see God speaking, and then we see him saying, let us make, God, or make man in our image. And so we see what is said here in Hebrews chapter 1, in, ch- in verse 2, it says, As in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and look at this, through whom also he made the worlds. So creation wasn't just created by God the Father, it was actually created by God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God, in Jesus Christ, didn't just start existing when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she became pregnant as a virgin to bring forth the Son into creation. That's how he was brought into life. He put on human skin, but he existed before creation. So when it says that he's the firstborn in Colossians chapter 1, that he's the firstborn over creation, it's not saying that he was the first one to be born in his family. The word firstborn means actually firstborn like in the Old, Old Testament where a firstborn would actually be the, have the right of inheritance from his father. And we see that in the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn. He came out first. And Jacob... Uh, tricked him out of his birthright. He actually tricked him out of it with a bowl of soup because Esau was a man of the flesh. He was a man of just desiring to eat, make his, his body feel better and his tummy full, and so much that he, you know, he came back and Jacob had made some, some soup or some lentils and he was worn out from hunting and he said, hey, Jacob, give me some of that soup. And he said, I'll give it to you for your birthright. And Esau goes, I don't care about my birthright. Give me some food or I'm going to die. He wasn't thinking about the long term, but what we find is that God honored that promise, and Jacob, who is the son of Isaac, becomes the firstborn, even though he wasn't born first, and he actually is the nation's name now. No longer Jacob, which is heel catcher, but Israel, which means governed by God, and he's the one that they named the whole nation after, and so being the firstborn in a family is important, but more so, Jesus is the only one born from his father. He's the only son of God, and he, is the, he has the right to the inheritance for the title deed of the earth. And we find out in the book of Revelation that he is the only one that is able to open the seal on the title deed to the earth. He buys it back with his own body as the sacrifice. So I know that I covered a lot of ground there, but the idea is that Jesus was preeminent. He existed before time, but he was made flesh through being born of a virgin. So it says here, he appointed, and, and, and the main per- point that he's making in this passage is that he spoke, God spoke through the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then he goes on to describe the son and why he has authority. Number one, he's the firstborn. He's the son of God. He's the rightful heir. Number two, he's the creator. And we see that in Genesis 1. And if we had a little more time, I'd go to John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Never mind, I'm going there. 
squirrel. John chapter 1. I've always thought it amazing to me. You see the, the beginning of the Gospel of John, and you see the beginning of Genesis, and it's like Jesus comes on the scene just like God did in Genesis 1. He says there in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, look at this, was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Or in some of your translations it will say, and the darkness does not, did not comprehend it. And you, you see that verse, and hopefully you think about the fact that when Jesus came, uh, men didn't receive him, and the Jewish people didn't receive him. They said, you know, hey, when's God going to speak to us again? And in the midst of that, they had God in human flesh standing before them. And so in the same way that we have in Genesis, God being shown that he existed before time, and then in John, we see Jesus being before time, and, and the fact that he is the word. That the Bible that we read isn't actually just a, a dead document, but this is unlike any other document that we can read because it's living, it's powerful, it's a person. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we have in this binding here. So he's the creator, John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, Genesis 1. He's also the sustainer. And we see that in Colossians verse 1 through 7, or 1, chapter 1, verse 17. But look at this. It says there in verse 3, who being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person, and then it says, and upholding all things by the word, there it is, God spoke and therefore it happened. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And then it goes on after a comma, because this is like the longest sentence ever. But he says there that God, through Jesus, upholds all that we know. You know, and, and in Peter, Peter actually writes that, that there will be a day where scoffers will come and say, you know what, all things have just continued on like they've always happened. We don't need to acknowledge God. He's just a fairy tale that we've come up with. But what he says there in Peter is that those are scoffers and they're wrong. Because all th there will be an end to what we know and what exists right now because God's going to take it like a piece of paper. He's going to crumple up and throw it in the trash can. And he's going to set up a new heavens and a new earth. And Jesus is going to be the one true authority. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's the sustainer of all that we know. The world the, the galaxies, our, our, our own bodies. Who makes your heart beat? Who makes your heart beat? You know, we think we understand things, and, and scientists have definitely observed things, but I still don't think that they truly understand what makes our hearts beat, unless they know God. And so we see here that he's the sustainer. But also, look at this. After he says that he upholds all things by the word of his power, it says, when he had by himself purged our sins, the only people that could do that in Judaism, forgive sins, was God, but that first there had to be a sacrifice made. So for your sins to be forgiven you, like I said earlier, they had to take a sacrifice. They had to take it to the temple, they had to kill an animal, they had to burn it on an altar. 
and the blood had to be put on the right places, and they had to pray the right prayer, and it was so important that they did things the right way that they would put bells on the high priest when he would go into the presence of God in the holies, holy of holies. And he would go past the veil. And he would go into the presence of God one time a year. And they would put bells on him because if he went in there and hadn't made the right sacrifices for himself, in the presence of God, he would, he would die. The holiness of the Lord was was known in that place, and God would kill the person that would come in without the proper sacrifices, without the proper preparation, without following the Old Testament law. And so we see that Jesus, being our high priest, enters into the Holy of Holies. He is the spotless Lamb of God. On the day of his baptism, when he sees John the Baptist there in the early chapters of the gospel, he actually goes to the river, and as he's baptized, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, And the Father speaks audibly from heaven and says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased, having the approval of His Dad. So the Trinity involved in even just a simple thing like the baptism, and then we see Him towards the end. He is not only the sacrifice, He's the one offering the sacrifice. And then as He dies, He is interceding on behalf of those who are surrounding Him. So you have the thieves on the cross and he expresses forgiveness to the man that, that expresses, hey, you know, one guy's mocking Jesus. The other one says, hey, this man is innocent. We're not. We deserve this. I think we should watch how we speak to him. And so he speaks to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. If he's not God, he doesn't get to see it, say that. And... On top of that, as he's praying for those who are not expressing that, he's actually praying for his enemies and saying, these people that are killing me, these people that have sentenced me to death, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. He's expressing grace to the the people that were even cursing and killing him. So he's high priest, mediator between God and man. And number five I have there for you, he's also conquering king. He says there, at the end of verse three, he says, he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, if you're a king, if you're truly a king, and you're at work and you're conquering all the nations around you, kings don't sit down until they've got everything under their control. But Jesus, having victoriously won the battle against the, the, the kingdom of darkness, sits down at the right hand of the Father. And what does he do now? He lives to intercede for you and I. We find that out in Romans chapter 8. And so uh, he has sat down, not just because it's, he's done with his work, but also because there's no more work to be done. Oh, here we are in Labor Day weekend. I heard the, the lawnmower is already rolling this weekend, you know. Uh, this morning, I get up and I hear everybody's working as hard as they can so they can rest a little bit, right? My dad always used to say, work hard, play hard. We don't feel like we can play hard unless we first worked hard so we can earn it, right? But Jesus has provided for us rest. He has done everything that we need to make us right between us and God the Father. And on top of that, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high 
because he is the king. That's the throne. The right hand in the Bible is always describing the hand of power. And so, next slide. He has, verse 4, having become so much better than the angels as he has by his inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So there's five warnings. I'm just giving you an overview today, but there's five warnings in the book of Hebrews. And these are warnings that historically Christians have debated and argued over. But I want to submit to you that the book of Hebrews is not written to non-believers. It's actually written to believers. And there are five warnings in there. And I talked about the word admonishment last week. They're admonishments. And the, uh, the word admonishment means to warn by teaching. And so there's five warnings that kind of make people uncomfortable. But it should. Because warnings are meant to open our eyes. We see so many warning labels anymore, we don't even pay attention. We get disclaimers before we sign up for things on our phone. Nobody reads those user agreements, right? Uh, you get in your car, on my car, I drive a Jeep, you flip up the, the visor and there's this warning about easy rollover. I haven't read that thing since the first time I drove it. I don't even know what it says. You know, there's, there's warning on our safety seats for our children. The safety seat, oh, why don't they just make the car as safe as the safety seat? You know, those things are like you could hook it up in a NASA, you know, rocket and kids would be safe somehow. You know, um, we used to ride in the back of the, the mini station wagon with the seats facing backwards with a lap belt. And people were like, eh, it'll be fine. You know, give them a Walmart bag for when they get the car sick. You know, but there's warnings on everything, right? Uh, in multiple languages. But here's the deal. God's word has warnings for us as well. But if we're not careful, we read those warnings and we don't really take heed to them. We don't really listen to them. And he's warning them about their desire to go back to their religion from Jesus. Many times we come to Jesus in a moment of weakness and brokenness. And then when we get comfortable again, we want to go back to what's comfortable to us. And so his warnings to them are, number one in chapter two, about drifting from the word. He says, make sure you listen to what the word has to say to you. Jesus, over and over again, what did he say to those that were around him? He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He obviously wasn't saying, anybody who has ears, listen, because we all have ears, right? But he was saying, if you have ears to hear, don't just listen, but take heed. The idea is to lean in to receive what you have, and then when you receive it, do something about it. You know, how many times have you that have children told your children something, you know they heard you, but you know they're not going to listen? How many times have we done that to Jesus? We read his word, we're listening, but we're not really listening. We're hearing, but we're not listening. Uh, you though, that work at this school, you're back in that season where you feel like you're just talking to a wall, you know? It's been a week, two weeks now, two. And you can already tell. They're like, oh, the newness. And then it's like, I hate school. And you can just feel it. It's oppressive. You feel like you're dragging them. And they're just digging in their heels. And they don't care. You know, I want to tell you, I want to encourage you, on the first day of school, most of them were going, this year's going to be different. And you guys were too, right? Keep going. There are some that are listening. You may not get to see the fruit of that but keep going. But then he's, he warns them, don't drift from the word. Don't neglect just the taking in of it. 
You know, many times people, I've talked to people all the time, I, I started reading the Bible every day, but just not getting anything out of it. It, it. I don't even remember what I read yesterday. And I would submit to you, uh, I bet some of you don't remember what you ate yesterday. Is it still nourishing you? Yes. Uh, number two, uh, don't doubt the word. We start to drift from the word. We neglect it. And then we start doubting it. We become hard-hearted toward it. And then number three, dullness towards the word. In verse chapter five, verse uh, five through chapter six, he talks about dullness towards the word. They, he talks about people that heard the word, but they became dull. And the idea is they become sluggish in listening to it. And th the other thing is he talks about lazy listeners. We become lazy in listening. We, we hear it, we subject ourselves to it, but we become lazy. If we don't get it, we just stop right there and go, well, I don't get it. I'm going to go do what I got to do. What we find out is that Jesus taught in parables so that those that weren't really listening wouldn't get anything out of it. But those that were hungry, what they said to him was, hey, why are you teaching in parables? And he said, so those that aren't really wanting to get it won't get it, and those that really want to get it will ask me. And so his disciples heard the parables, and then when they were alone, they'd say, hey, what did you mean by this? They dug in. They sought further. Sometimes I think we, we don't hear anything because we read it and we don't seek anything further. We go, okay, got it done, let's go. And the reality is, is that God reveals himself to us in a mystery. And the fun of a mystery is that you, you, you're just like, I, I wonder what he means by this. And then we start to dig. It's like a treasure map. He doesn't give us a treasure map because he wants to make it difficult on us. He makes it a treasure map so that he can find out if we're really interested in the treasure. And what is the treasure? Him. More time with Him. So number four, we become, after drifting and doubting and lazy listeners, we despise the Word. And then number five, we start to defy the Word, refusing to hear. So I'm going to sum this all up by reading a quote from Warren Wearsby because he's smarter than me. It's long, but I'm going to read it to you, okay? He said this about these five things. He says, if we do not listen to God's word and really hear, hear, we will start to drift. Neglect always leads to drifting in things material and physical as well as spiritual. As we drift from the word, we start to doubt the word because faith comes by hearing the word of God. We start to get hard hearts and this leads to spiritual sluggishness which produces dullness towards the word. We become dull of hearing, lazy listeners. This leads to a despiteful attitude toward the word to the extent that we willfully disobey God, and this gradually develops into a defiant attitude, and we almost dare God to do anything. So, next slide. Are you tempted to go back? So my first question is, what tempts you to go back to where things were before your relationship with the Lord? Hebrews is a book that says no matter what you are tempted to go back to, no matter what your comfort zone is, no matter how good you remember it being, by the way, you came to Jesus because all those things had let you down before. The Hebrew Christians were no different. They knew that no matter how many times they made sacrifices, they were going to have to do it again. So then what? So he says, no matter how much you remember it being better than what you're in now, 
remember that Jesus is better. So how do we avoid the temptation to look back? I have that for you on the next slide. Get back to what God has said in his word. He he began creation by speaking. He began salvation by speaking to you, you hearing and faith being developed from that. So how much more so is he going to sustain your faith and grow your faith by you taking heed to what he says? God has spoken to us in his son, verse 1 and 2 said. See to it, verse, chapter 12, verse 25, way later down in the book, he says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So take what he says and don't refuse it, either by willfully disobeying it or by simply refusing it through apathy. How many times is it easy to get apathetic and go, you know what, I don't get it, never mind. We're, we're bad about that. Um, God has spoken, we have his word. The question is, what are we doing with it? Faith that grows is faith that's exercised. So maybe you don't know these big, deep theological things that people argue about. Who cares? Do the simple things. Yesterday, God challenged me to do the simple things. It was a step of faith for me. I got some guys that are doing some work behind my place. They're working on that big, huge old St. Mary's place. And they're making it look really nice. They're there every day, burning plastic and all kinds of stuff I don't want to smell, right? But they're cleaning it up, and so I'm thankful. But I also happen to know the guy that's doing the work, and I know his kids. And so as I was splitting wood yesterday, and I borrowed somebody's wood splitter, and I was being blessed by that, and as I was taking a drink of my nice cold glass of water and watching them work while I was taking a little break, the Lord said, don't you think they'd like a cup of cold water? And I stopped and thought, and I instantly the scripture popped in my head. Whoever you give a, a cup of cold water to someone in my name, you're blessed. And so I, I stopped and I was like, okay. So I ran in the house and I said, I need a cup of cold water. And Kelly goes, I just gave you one. I said, I need two. And she goes, for what? I said, I feel like the Lord's telling me to do something simple. So I'm going to go do it. So I took a couple cups of cold water, walked it over there and said, here you go. And they're like, thanks, you know, because they're over there drinking their cold Mountain Dew and ripsticks and whatever energy drinks. I was like, here's some water. You need some water. It's hot out here. So maybe, maybe you need to start there. God's not asking you to go build a boat and take 100 years to do it and save the whole world. You know, if he was, go do it. But the reality is, sometimes I think we neglect the simple things, and because of that, we never get to go to the bigger things. How many of you would be willing to go on a mission trip? Many of us would, but how many of us are willing to be missionaries to our neighbors? If, if that's the case, if we're not willing, it's because we just haven't simply listened. You know, the, even the scribes and the Pharisees said, well, who's my neighbor? Whoever's next to you. Stop trying to qualify who's your neighbor and start loving people. Be kind. It'll go a long way. That's how the kingdom of God is built and planted. So my prayer, Father, renew our desire to hear your voice above all of the voices, all of our noises. What, what have you said? We know that it's going to be fulfilled. Just take, take advantage of his promises. So we're going to take communion this morning. And I know it's going a little bit long, but I think it's important that we take some time of contemplation during communion. Maybe you're someone who has been taking heed and you're just... God's been really blessing you. High five. I'll give you one after service. 
Uh, maybe you're somebody who's struggling, and you, you're like, I, God, what do you want me to do? And maybe you're somebody that's kind of become dull and even despised the word. Guess what? God loves you, and he's still speaking to you. It's okay. I go through seasons like that. So on the next slide, I have some things to think about as you spend some time with the word during communion. Communion is simply that. It is a meal with God, with each other present. That's all it is. When Jesus instituted communion, those 12 guys leaning back at a table, they didn't know what was about to happen. But Jesus was instituting something that they could do with him once he died and then resurrected. So, whose voice are you listening to lately? Adam and Eve, their biggest failure when they fell in the garden was they heeded the voice of the serpent instead of the voice of God. Whose voice are you listening to? Is it the Lord's voice? Are you intently and purposefully listening? Do you believe what he says about himself? And do you believe what he says about you? Or is it another voice? The voice of the tempter. The accuser of the brethren. God would ask you, like he asked Adam and Eve after they sinned against him, where are you? Now, he knew where they were, but he was saying, what have you gotten yourself into? Come back to me. Listen to me. Return. He's already made a way for you to be restored. And this is this fellowship meal we get ready to have. So I would inspire you. I would encourage you. Take this meal this morning. Get right with the Lord. If there's areas where you know you've not been listening and it's obvious, don't feel condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Receive that. Believe that. But at the same time, don't reject the conviction that you drive us closer to the Lord. Let that press into you. He wants you. He loves you. He wants to eat with you. So as we get ready to take communion, I'm going to play a song. And then we will take communion together after the song. But take this song. You don't have to sing the song. Embrace the truth that's in it. Spend some time just one-on-one with Jesus. Pray about the things that you've been convicted about. And then express to the Lord, I believe what you've done in me is real. Help me to get back to listening to you. So I'm going to play a song. And then as you guys feel led during the song, um, after you spend some time with the Lord, come and take from the table.